The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. The Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our listeners 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do, especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community. Our other offer for our listeners is still with Backstage. Backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription. You heard that right, 12 months free If you follow the link in the description box for casting directors, you can post free castings when you type in persistent and nasty at checkout. Hello, you lovely lot, and welcome to another episode of Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Elaine here. How are you all doing? I hope that you are all surviving this dreich weather, as we say in Scotland. Um, Keeping warm, keeping safe, wearing your mask, washing your hands and being kind to each other and yourself. Today's episode, myself and Louise chat to the incredible Yasmin Abdul-Majid. Yasmin is a writer, engineer, social advocate, boxer, and all-round inspiring, incredible human being. I honestly cannot wait for you all to hear this episode. It is joyful, Um, brilliant and we discuss uh, Yasmin's latest book Listen Lila um, which is available at the moment in uh, New Zealand and Australia. Uh, I should also probably say that Yasmin is in fact Australian. Also Australia you get a lot of shout out on the podcast today because you know we're all just jealous of you in New Zealand living your best life with basically no lockdown so um, forgive us that. But we, you know, we're all we're all starting to get a bit stir crazy in our houses. Um, as always, you can follow us on all social media: Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, and as always, you can send us a wee email to persistentandnasty at gmail As always, if you want to chuck us the price of a wee cup of coffee or a wee cup of tea, um, the PayPal link is in the bottom. We are super grateful for all of you who support us and keep this podcast initiative and advocacy work going. We would be lost without you. Um, I think that's all from me today. Have I missed anything? I'm starting to have lockdown brain. I don't know if anybody else is getting it where I forget to say. Oh, yes, I have. Remember to like, subscribe, review and um, download the episodes. It really, really makes a huge difference to us. And, the, you know, those pesky algorithms we we want to get. I don't know what we want to do, but we, we want to be bumped up in some form of algorithm. Anyway. Enough of me rambling on. 
get yourself a little, oh, a wee cup of tea, hot chocolate, um, if you fancy, maybe a wee coffee with a wee shot of some liqueur in it, just to warm the cockles, you know. Sit back, relax and enjoy. But at the same point, the thought of being in a room with, like, as you say, more than three people as well, like, makes me feel... I can't even put it into words I'm like oh no but then at the same point my whole entire being because I've realized I'm such a touchy person Mm. like I cannot wait to hug other humans I'm like oh my god I can't Mm. work so touchy as in tag my nephew last week and it was the most (laughs) joyous thing like I didn't break any rules I would like to say Aww. he's under 11 so I am and I was outside I wasn't inside the house and he wanted to go and see my gran with me his great gran um and he was I came around the street to get him and he was out in his wee scooter with his pal and I was like I'm going to drive in here and he's going to be like I'm not coming Auntie Lane because he's four I'm like why why would he want to come with me and then I get out of the car and all I can hear him shouting is, I have to go, that's my Auntie Lane, bye, Aww. to his friends. And he's like scooting along and he's scooting really, really fast. And then it was like a movie, like he flung his scooter to the side and then he just started running with his big massive freaking helmet on and like jumped into my arms. He's like, I've missed you, Auntie Lane. And I was like, dude, Aww. you have no idea how much I needed that. And I'm like standing in the street trying not to cry going, oh. oh my god I really needed it <laughs> also that like unabashed love of children that like enthusiasm that's like I just missed you a lot and I'm gonna give you a huge hug and you're the most important thing in my life right now yeah oh. and then like, yeah. I, I dropped him back off at his house and I'm standing again out in the street and he's like Auntie Lane you're not going home yours I was like darling I can't stay here he's like you can just stay here and I was like no I can't I can't come in the house and he's like oh coronavirus <laughs> oh my god I do wonder what it's like for kids like um I, I heard this hilarious story where um again in Australia one of my friends was like meeting one of her friends like six-year-olds or something and the six-year-old like ran up and then like paused and she looked at her mom she's like is she now bubble and I was like Oh, <laughs> the fact that that's a question that you have and it's very normalised. It's just, like, wild. It's, it's totally wild. And I've been thinking a lot about how adaptable kids have been during this mm. situation. Like, they are really, like, particularly if they're at a certain very, uh, you know, absorbing everything age, they are kind of rolling with the punches in a way that's quite astonishing. But I suppose like- I've been giving... Sorry. Oh, no, I was just saying, like, they're yeah. just like, oh, this is this is the world this is the world um but the flip side of that is like oh but it's not it's not really supposed mm. to be the world and I don't want you thinking that this is the mm. world and it's so, and I like something struck me the other day about lockdown babies um like that were yeah. born just before this happened and that of going through the first year of their life not understanding or like you know, I mean they're, they're they're just young so they won't necessarily remember but there is something kind of like shocking to know mm. that there are going to be people out there whose early years were spent completely indoors yeah I also think it's part of their development yeah Mm. well yeah like those first few years are vital right for like Mm. connecting with others and developing empathy so I do wonder also like the number of people I know that got pregnant during lockdown (laughs) wild it's like almost every one of my female friends with a male partner 
who was with them for like longer than six months just popping them out I'm just like (laughs) also because you don't know they're pregnant because you haven't seen them and so you just get an Mm -hmm. email out of the blue being like welcome you know Lacey and you're like what (laughs) when did this happen (laughs) yeah it's it's I mean, well, you know, some of us up the duff. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of us were baking banana bread. Others yeah, were baking li- other literally. things. <laughs> Whatever works for you. Like. I didn't make a child or make banana bread. I don't know what I've done. Drank wine. I yeah. I um. I went through a phase uh, when it was really so. I like lost all my work quite suddenly probably in like March and then there was nothing it was like barren wasteland until like September um so in about April April May I was like I need a new career (laughs) I'm gonna become a lawyer and I just I never studied law in my life I was just like oh the the options in life are engineer doctor lawyer and accountant I'd done engineering, didn't want to be a doctor. I was like, law's next on the list. Um, and so I did all my research. I watched Silks. I watched Suits. I watched The Split. I watched all of the TV shows related to lawyers. And I was like, I am ready for this. Um, and applied. I literally, I applied to scholarships. I applied to mini privileges. I like put every, and then like, I was just about to submit my application. I got people to write me reference letters for this career change. Um, and then I was just about to submit my application to do the like law conversion. And my partner was like, uh, should we talk about, should we talk about this? Have you read any law? I was like, no, that's not the point. I want to be a barrister. I want to, <laughs> I've seen it on the television. I, I, do. I know how to, I know, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> you don't have to talk and, you know, <laughs> chat shit to the judge. And, um, and then I like, picked up some like who was like well maybe read this and I opened it and I like fell asleep on the first page I was like hmm 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 maybe maybe I shouldn't become a lawyer <laughs> the pace of this That's was better on the tv yeah. Yeah, quicker. Yeah. Like... <laughs> and then yeah. I found that if I wanted to if I was going to be a criminal lawyer I would like earn nothing I was like oh so I'll do, yeah. do all of this and still be broke I was like that's not the plan this is not the plan. <laughs> Talking about career changes, Yasmin, we can totally now segue on it. Segue. Yeah, segue. <laughs> Beautifully done, Elaine. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I give myself a little hair flick. Oh God, and then realise how badly my hair needs cut. Uh, um, anyway, um, moving away from COVID, <laughs> let's concentrate on you, Yasmin. Um, so you have a new book out. I do. Um, Moving from engineering and uh, a boxer as well at one point, right? I was. um, I kept that actually hidden from my mum the entire time. (laughs) So she was always like, oh, Yasmin does boxer size. Um, There I am, like, hiding my, like, mouth guard and head guard from my mum. But, yeah, so I did. I I boxed and trained um, for five years. And then my, my dream was always to work in, like, Formula One. Um, and I had I'd gotten into like a master's in motorsport, which is kind of the the route to that. Um, but it's very expensive, and so I was like, okay, I need to save some money. Um, I need to get a job. But I had applied for a scholarship, been way too cocky, didn't actually get the scholarship, and then didn't have any job options. And I was like, well, well okay, because I'd missed the kind of like 
um, the cutoff for when you're supposed to apply for all these engineering jobs. The only kind of like in I had left was I'd met this guy who worked on oil rigs at one of these careers fairs. So I like emailed him. I was like, hey, do you have any oil rig jobs? And he was like, oh, actually, <laughs> yeah, we do. And so I, um, yeah, that, that is, that, that's how it happened. And funnily enough, the reason I impressed him was because I was the only person he'd met that day at the careers fair who, who was able to pronounce the company name correctly. Um, which I was like, yeah, what's mm. up, you know? So Schlumberger was the name of the company. Everyone calls it Schlumberger, um, which is not how it's, uh, it's very French, it's like Schlumberger. Um, so I went in with my like most hoity-toity vibe. I was like, oh yeah, it's the Schlumberger. <laughs> anyway, I ended up working. I weirdly, like I did also, a year. Can I just say, I love how um, you totally channeled like straight white male energy and just emailed him and was like, you got a job, pal? Because, you know, it's that thing <laughs> in particular, like women, we really don't do that. But I love that you just were like, mm, okay, I don't have any other options left. Hi, oil rigs. I'm coming for you. <laughs> exactly. I'm all about channeling that like that that sort of oh yeah I'm definitely meant to be here by I mean the way that I actually so the way that I got into my master's in motorsport it's a slightly long-winded story but long story short was um I was like I was living in Brisbane Australia there's no connection to Formula One um but I knew that I somehow needed to like meet somebody from England and that would be my ticket in right just somebody from England um and I'd heard that there was like a professor, an engineering professor visiting who was like involved with the Institute of Mechanical Engineers or whatever. So I just like hung out in the lobby at the reception at my engineering building until he walked past. And I was like, oh, hi, you must be the so. And he was like, mm-hmm. and I was like trying to essentially chat him up for a job. And he was like, wasn't hearing it, wasn't having any of it. And, and then I saw he was wearing like a rotary club, like, badge thing and I was like oh you're a member of the Rotary Club and I've never seen an Englishman go from so sad to so happy so quickly he was just like oh brilliant I mean I can't do I don't know what accent that was um but he, he, he was like oh yes I am and I was like oh well, I know some people I can introduce he's like oh next time I'm in town but here's my card I was like churching I emailed this guy every month for like nine months I was like hey just me again just wondering if you've got any jobs in motorsport that you could (laughs) and then like he never replied but about nine months in his secretary emailed me and was like hey so we noticed you're very interested in this sector um there's this there's this guy who's looking for an intern or whatever we thought we would put you in touch and um and so that's how I ended up getting like getting into the UK. My mistake uh, was that so I'd arrived, I'd organized this, I'd saved up my money. I was like my dream country. I walked into the office. There was like two McLaren F1s on my way to the office. It was like the most. I was like I had made it. Everyone had English accents. It was brilliant. Um, I was like I'm in a film. And then halfway through the day, the receptionist called me. She's like, Hey, um, do you have your work visa? And I was like, My what? Oh, no. And she's like, your work visa. I was like, no, I thought you guys sorted that out. I'm 19, never heard of a work visa in my life. She was like, oh, sorry, you can't work here if you don't have a work visa. I was like, I'll work for free. I'll just hang out. She was like, well, sorry, we can't let anyone who's not an employee be on premise. They kicked me off the premises. <laughs> they escorted me on my first day of the premise. I was like, 
No, 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 this can't be happening. This oh. is a movie. <laughs> and then I just like sat in my B&B watching EastEnders and crying for a week. And then I was like, because the only way to get a visa was to go fly back to Australia. And there was no way I could afford that. So then I just started cold emailing every possible person I could find. I'm like, hi, I'm a 19-year-old mechanical engineer who really wants to make it into motorsport. Um, can I have a meeting with you? And like, that's how I ended up finding this masters in motorsport guy who was like, yeah, you know what? You should study here. That'll be great. Very long-winded story, but to say all that to say, most of my life has just been a result of incessantly emailing people. Um, so I highly recommend that. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> you could probably cut out big chunks of that. No, as, uh, like as you no, were saying, I was like, this is a movie, and why is Yasmin not written this yet as a movie? Because you know. It is. Oh my god, my life is a series of failed visas. Like that's just <laughs> the story of my life. <laughs> so you did mechanical engineering and got to Formula One. Got, yeah, I got like I I like I just touched it. You know, like it teased me, and then I just before I could like fully commit, I ended up on. I like sort of took this tangent and went went into work on these oil rigs to save up for the master motorsport and then weirdly ended up really liking it um and stayed for four years um and then while I was working on the rigs I kept a blog because it was like the 2010s and that's what people did um and it was called redefining the narrative uh bless and (laughs) (laughs) so earnest (laughs) Oh, no. <laughs> and um and I had a section called crazy rig conversations which you know we don't, I don't like to use the word crazy anymore but it was like all of the things that people would say on the rigs and then off the back of that I so I was doing a lot of like community work and one of the people I was doing community work with was like you should write you should write more about your time on the rigs and I was like nobody's gonna be interested it's like the most boring thing ever she was like trust me um and so she convinced me to write an essay um, that was then published in a sort of quarterly publication in Australia called the Griffith Review. And for some reason, people were like, what is this Sudanese hijabi woman doing on oil rigs around Australia? Um, and off the back of that, I got offered a book deal, a memoir book deal, which was wild. And I was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> and I, I legitimately was saying, like, wasn't going to accept it. And my mom was like, Yusina, take the book deal. People kill for book deals. Like, take the damn thing and write the story. I was like, okay, mom, no worries. Um, wrote, wrote my memoir. And I guess the way that I, the way that I approached it, because I was pretty young. I was like 23, turning 24. I was like, I don't necessarily think my life is all like I'm still learning and so on but I wanted it I wanted to use the opportunity to kind of I think because I I think up until that point there weren't that many sort of own voices quote-unquote stories of like Muslim girls in Australia um and I wanted to kind of use it as an opportunity to be like hey we're normal humans too um the problem though was even though I was doing that alongside my engineering work the engineering company that I was working for at that time not huge fans of me having a public profile and essentially were like you have to choose between you know being able to write 
and write publicly and speak publicly because I was doing a bit of that as well or being an engineer you just can't be both um and so when the, when my book came out they like issued a disciplinary warning they like docked my I was I had just been given a promotion to run my own rig offshore Brunei I was like a few days away from flying to go run my own rig I was like I made it um and they were like and no they pulled me in they like gave me a disciplinary warning they docked my pay they docked my promotion they um essentially were like yeah you can't we can't be seen rewarding someone also which is total bs because the year but like a graduate in the year above me had was this white guy who was swanning around attending conferences in his own organization's name and nobody he actually did not do any of his work he was underperforming so badly that they were like look you need to pull back but rather than like not giving rather than benching him they gave him an overseas post um in Scotland and then in the UAE um and when I started to come in he was like look you're probably not going to be able to manage to do all the work at the same time like I I wasn't able to and blah 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 I you weren't able to meet yeah have you met any women (laughs) Yeah, I was like, excuse me. Um, not only was I the highest ranked drilling graduate in the region, but I wrote a book on my time off. But oh no, as my boss said to me, the perception is you can't possibly be doing your job if you're this successful outside the company. So, you know, you just have to manage that perception. And so I was like, uh, I'm not really left with an option. Let me take a year off. I took a year leave without pay and I've not looked back. I mean, I'm really glad you've not looked back. But the rage I am feeling right now, oh, yeah. complete injustice. I'm also a bit like, like, I mean, like, no, it's you. It's your job to manage that perception because, yeah. like, you know, I'm doing my job. You know, I'm doing my job yeah. well. You promoted me for God's sake, and I've written this book. So actually, it's to you to manage the perception, mate. It's really Ugh. like it's really it is something that when people ask me about why I left engineering, I'm like, do you want the long-winded story or the like really angry long-winded story? <laughs> <laughs> angry long-winded yeah always the angry one because I'm just furious all the time because I worked really bloody hard and I spent almost a decade of my life being quite good at it and you know other people's insecurities meant that I like I wasn't able to to be who I wanted to be in that world which like sucks and you know you hear people bang on about like getting women into these sectors and you're like what's the point of getting women in if you can't handle them when they get there like yes I'm not I'm just like not gonna be I think also when I was younger like in my early you know when I first started I was 20 when I first started on the rigs um I think I was like maybe more amenable to molding myself as per the expectations of others and as you get older you just can't be fucked anymore I don't know how much rain I'm allowed to do, but like I just... so much. <laughs> okay, so yeah. as much as you. <laughs> yeah. Do you know Which what you'll I mean? Discover... <laughs> the next time Ali gets angry, you'll discover just how much you're allowed to. Swear. All right, great, 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 great. I love it. I actually remember my first my first friend on the rigs was a um, an Aberdeenian woman um, who I met, and she was she literally saved my life. She was amazing, and she dropped the sea bump she was like oh the fucking cunts and I was like I was like 20 and I'd never heard anyone I was like oh wow you're amazing <laughs> teach me your ways 
Uh, although to be fair to Australians, uh, uh, particularly Australians from Brisbane that I've met, they're pretty That's good at true. dropping yeah. the sea bomb too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. I always forget that it's like not normalised everywhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'll be in Sainsbury's, I'll be like, oh, the content cornflakes are, you know, and and like people move their children away from me. Yeah, yeah, it's a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> that to your point, Yasmin, about um industries like like engineering or or you know these primarily male dominated industries sending a message out saying we want more women in these sectors like it feels particularly in the wake of your experience it feels like so much of that is PR and it's like yeah we do want that but we want it enough so it looks good for us but actually we don't really want to affect any real change or have somebody come in and and rattle cages I think yeah and I think that's like applicable to so many industries in so many different ways right like even you know, acting and screen and theatre and all these sorts of spaces. I think it's sometimes even more pernicious because um, you're like, oh, these are quote-unquote liberal spaces and they'll, you know, be more progressive and be more accepting. And it's like, oh, you have to do even more work to, to get your head around the fact that, like, the change might not actually happen, that it might just be, you know, pinkwashing or greenwashing or whatever other it's it's superficial because it, I mean I don't know if you saw the there was a report that came out recently that looked at like um black and brown community t- uh, representation in screen I think it was television um oh my god I can't name remember the name of the report and it had gone down from 2019 to 2020 like on screen yes, it was you know in the I'm talking about Somebody pointed out that like that report is also voluntary, which means that the real numbers are probably lower because people who don't have any rep are probably not going to contribute to it. And you just like, like 2020 was a year where we had the George, the murder of George Floyd and like these global Black Lives Matter kind of protests and so on. And every exec, development exec in the land was like, yes, we really care about this and blah, blah. And yet the numbers still go down, right? And you're like, the, the kind of the, the work you have to do to get around all the talk and the hype is exhausting. Not even the work of actually like doing the change once you get there, but like the work to figure out how serious people are, what they really mean, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's and you can the further back you go with that stuff. I think about this a lot in terms of some of the you know, more civilian type jobs I've had over the years, desk jobs within an arts management mm. context for talk and sake. And, you know, so often there's so much talk about about work um, to uh, make things more inclusive and, and increase better representation. And, and a lot of it's work being done with good intentions by good people. But like you look around and you go, well, our board is all white and everybody in the senior and middle management positions are all white. And you're sort of a bit like, well, how much real authentic work is happening here if we don't actually have people who these issues affect in any form of position of authority? And that, I, like my friend um, uh, Amanda, who's an actress in the States, she's doing a lot of work for Broadway for racial justice uh, campaign mm. um, that's looking at that. And, and it, it, a lot of their work, my understanding, is that is, is to address that very issue. It's like when the very, very top power structures are like completely white, and rich it's like how how much are we actually going to change on a on a a real like core root you know level because it's 
yeah it just you keep you come up I think you come up against a wall time and time again because of that um you're totally and the fact that they're not only white but they're rich and they're elite I think is a massive part of it because it means that the world that they are a part of is just so divorced from the rest of our realities like they wouldn't even often know how to find somebody who is like you know working class or from a um diaspora background or like whatever like it's I often I'm quite surprised sometimes by because you think oh you exist in the you have access to the same internet that I do you have you know the same tools that I have like surely this is not such a difficult thing for you and then you find that like they are shocked and surprised by the most benign things and you're like oh wow your world is literally like hermetically sealed from the one that the rest of us exist in. So how on earth are you going to make work that's culturally relevant, that speaks to the issues that we're facing, that um, that doesn't seem tone deaf? And sadly, I think even if things are tone deaf and culturally irrelevant and borderline, if not like straight out offensive, it still makes money. And I think that's also part of the challenge is like, there was a, a really fascinating piece on American Dirt, which was a book that was published, I think last year, which was written by a white woman, ostensibly like a white woman who was married to a um, quote unquote undocumented migrant who actually in, in the United States, who the implication was that this guy, that her husband was, um, you know, somebody who was like, she wrote this book about the experience of being, I think, a Mexican um, family moving over as undocumented migrants to the United States. Um, and she'd sort of said, yeah, my husband's an undocumented migrant. And this is something that, you know, I've got Latinx kind of roots. Her husband was like Irish, un an Irish undocumented migrant, which is a very different experience to being like a Latinx undocumented migrant. But also like she, the, the criticism from Latinx communities in the US was like, this person has written the whole book in tropes and in like a way that everyone thinks is authentic, but is not authentic if you'd ask anyone who's actually had this experience. Um, and yeah, it was like, even though there was massive backlash, uh, there was like a, one of the launches or one of the events they did around the book, the, um, the center pieces of every table was like concrete blocks with like, barbed wire around it or just like really tone deaf things like this um it it was still like I think the the best like the longest running best-selling book of 2020 and so even though there was this massive backlash and her tour was cancelled and all this and the other ultimately like it succeeded and the author is probably going to continue to do really well and so there's this kind of tension as well I think between um, the changes or the, the the discourse that happens in the world that I'm a part of, which would be like mainstream popular culture, whatever, Twitter, the Twitterati, um, and the way that the those who control the um, mechanisms of cultural creation kind of exist. That they just in, in they don't necessarily speak to each other as much as perhaps they, as we perceive them to. Yeah. I'm I wonder as well. I've got this, uh, the, the rage is, no, sorry, the rage is coming. No, coming. Right. <laughs> um, it's, it's here. 
Um, it'll be a tsunami, kind of, a tsunami of swearing in a minute. Yeah, <laughs> it's that thing of that that woman who has decided to write that book using a completely different culture, and the fact that the fact that she's white, I feel as a white woman, I can she has felt she's completely entitled to do that. Mm. Uh, bitch, you're not fucking check yourself, <laughs> and like no, like if you. If, Oh, I can't speak I have had many a conversation about this um, partly because I don't know if you maybe this made it to here or, or not I'm not sure years ago did you um, Lionel Shriver came and spoke at um, the Brisbane Writers Festival and she spoke about cultural appropriation does this ring a bell by any chance no that's fine oh, please, um, please. So, no the, the Essentially, she came to my hometown and, and she was invited to, the, to do the keynote speech um, to open the festival. And it was all about how cultural appropriation was a fad. And I'm like very done with the conversation about cultural appropriation. But at the time, I was like, my book had just come out and I was sitting in this audience and I was the only, I think, one of the few writers of colour in that audience. And everyone was kind of chuckling about how ridiculous it was to make fun of cultural appropriation or to... to care about it and I was like I've got to leave I walked out um and then the next day I was chatting to some people about it and they couldn't understand why I'd walked out why I'd found it problematic so I wrote a blog post um and then this blog post got picked up by the Guardian and it like blew up it was it was the first time I like properly went viral and I just like pissed a whole bunch of people off because it was at a time when the idea of like who gets to write what was was I think in the early stages of that conversation and what I often say to people is like look I'm not forbidding anyone from writing anything but number one I think there's it's a valid thing to ask am I the best person to write this and number two if you are so convinced that you are then just do a bloody decent job at it the problem is is most people do a terrible job right like I don't care if you're some white guy that wants to write about Nigeria if you are able to write like the most nuanced you know you went and lived there for 20 years and you like are going to give all the money like just do a good job of it because that at least recognizes the context that you're in but like don't just use the same tired tropes because whether we like it or not the literature that we create the stories that we create have a real world impact Exactly. Thank you, because you've just said kind of what I was trying to say <laughs> so much better than my brain was allowing me to do. But it's that thing about, you know, she could have used her privilege of being a white woman to actually really change the narrative that's put out there. But all she's done is reinforce. Exactly. Yeah. Is reinforce it. And now, oh, now you've got the best selling book of 2020. Right. And then you've got to do so much work to like undo that. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just, it's, and also, you know, that, that fact that you've been at the book festival and it's really interesting. I find this really fascinating as well. Like there's so many stories probably like that, that we don't know about because mm. they're not given the platform of that moment and that person coming. So, you know, that happened in Brisbane and you've told us, and we didn't know that in Scotland, mm. or maybe some people might have done, but you know, it's just kind of bypassed. But that's a really important moment 
culturally for everybody that that should have been discussed that that person goes to a book festival and says cultural appropriation isn't really a thing uh okay yeah <laughs> all right then <laughs> yeah and, and I think there's this sorry no no you go ahead Lou. no I was just gonna say you, you you mentioned a couple of times about people like in those positions just regurgitating tropes and how that's like I wonder if that's because oh, you, um, you said something about the woman with the, the Irish husband who sort of appropriated mm. the immigrant experience and um, and how she did there's like very little accountability yes okay she got a book to her cancelled but actually she's her book did well and like I suppose there's two problems with writing and tropes it's first of all it doesn't really interrogate anything I think and second of all it, as well as not giving someone whose legitimate experience that is a chance to talk about it but also it's like, is there something about it? It's just more palatable for people. Like they're not actually being presented with the truth of a real of a, a real lived experience like that because what's actually happening is someone's just regurgitating the palatable bits of somebody else's academic work or, or the experience that they've had. Mm. And I think it's like, I, I do wonder if it comes back again to like that that moment where you hit a wall when it's like oh but that's that's it isn't it it's the gatekeeper saying well this is we're going to go with this version of it because it's not actually presenting us with the hard truth that people don't want to hear not really um, yeah one and one hundred percent oh sorry Elaine did you want to say no I'm something? just going to go on a rant again about it's not fucking, <laughs> it's not fucking eighteen ninety five and you know you're an undocumented Irish immigrant in America like for fuck's sake. <laughs> come on to fuck I mean <laughs> honestly, I think everyone who's Irish in, in America is technically undocumented they just stroll in they have a great old time and also I'm sorry but being undocumented immigrant and being of Irish descent in America is only going to get you places because they all fucking think they're <laughs> yeah, Irish they or Scottish them. anyway so like what fucking difference does that make anyway I'm just going to put myself back on mute <laughs> please carry on no, 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 it's fine. I was, I'm going to make one disclaimer, um, which is I'm not, like, if I haven't described the plot of American Dirt exactly correctly, forgive me. It's just what I remember. Um, so nah, people should definitely... No, no, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing, um, the other thing is, like, again, it's about the, the sort of the whole system. It's partly also because the people who are commissioning these books and, who, and you know, again, across the industry who are commissioning books, televisions, films, whatever, they're also going to commission the stuff that make them feel comfortable, that they want to read. And what they want to read isn't necessarily the truth. Like, uh, it's much more palatable to reinforce. And it also makes me think of Edward Said. Edward Said's writing on the idea of cultural and culture and imperialism and how we the the kind of the power of you know let's say the west or, or the way that they kind of operate in relation to other cultures is by um defining it themselves in the lens that they want to and that's what the tropes are it's it's, it's defining what you think the other the quote-unquote other is and that becomes the story that becomes the narrative that becomes the myth and everything reinforces that and any and nothing like challenging that isn't even part of the equation because it's also about what the tropes tell you about yourself if that makes sense so if you think that um you know the, the immigrants from this place are like xyz 
that makes you feel better about yourself because that's not who you are, right? That like the purpose of the other is to also reinforce how superior you feel in your civilization or your existence or whatever. Um, I've probably butchered Edward Said's wonderful work, but you know, you can't, you get the vibe, right? And I think it's something I spend, I, I'm really fascinated um, by how there is power in story and myth and narrative. And I guess it's new, it's new in a sense for me because I, you know, as you know, grew up as my whole family are engineers, right? Like my my dad's an engineer, my mom's an architect, my brother's an engineer, all of my my, my family in Sudan had an engineering company, like we're engineers. Um, and so I didn't grow up really with like literature or going to the theatre or anything like that um and so it's quite interesting to kind of like come into the space of being maybe what I term a cultural worker and thinking about what value that holds and and, and also like trying to challenge my own ideas of um coming from you know the STEM world where, where engineers think they're superior like sadly you know it's it's a bit messed up but they're like oh well we make things and blah 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 um and so like, how do I allow myself to believe and um, accept and reinforce within myself that the work that I do now is just as important as the like hard and fast engineering, you know, or like essential work of being a doctor or whatever. Like how, how do I square what I do with what I used to do and what I think is important in the world? Does that make sense? Yeah. It totally makes sense. sense total sense I mean there's that I mean as an actor and freelancer and all of that I constantly I'm like really are you really that important <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really, uh, it's really it's really bad for our self-esteem <laughs> like, I know it's just constant kind of <laughs> I know and it's just but then I it's think constantly being challenged as well we that it joins all of us though because I think everybody questions that yeah. maybe not if you're an engineer and you know you're like oh, I'm forgetting you know I'm making this and it's so good <laughs> engineers <laughs> have like a bit of a god complex I think <laughs> Well, dad yeah, I remember yeah. growing up and my dad would be like being a doctor all you need to do is memorize some books we're the real problem solvers <laughs> like <laughs> it's, a, it's a problem uh, all right, fair enough dad all right yeah, literally yeah. so disrespectful <laughs> <laughs> but it's but actually though and it's funny oh. In prep for today, I rewatched your TED talk about our, our oh. unconscious bias. And actually that comes in not just when mm. it's got to do with um where we're from, but actually our jobs as well and what that what that plays in. This is another little segue, guys. Oh, very nice. <laughs> uh, you're you're <laughs> on fire today with the segues. I'm loving it. It's great. <laughs> it's making us look really oh. professional. I love it. Thanks, babes. <laughs> amazing transitions yeah so I mean yeah let's let's talk about your TED talk <laughs> what would you like to know <laughs> well just what was the reaction in the room because um I'm always I love TED talks I watch loads of them like I'm obsessed but I always wish I was in the room because I actually mm. want to know that thing about because as you're watching them you're like yeah 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 
I want I want to feel that energy shift in the room mm. and do like like what does that what happens in that moment really like did you feel it shift what's really interesting again I'll give you a bit of the backstory so I um used to I like started and ran a youth organization and called Youth Without Borders and great that was going to be another segue and I'm so oh yeah, yeah all right so, <laughs> so I started when I was like so it's also funny because I think that like um, I'm old enough now that I can kind of say, oh, back in my day kind of thing. Because like when I started Youth Without Borders, Facebook was just starting. You know, there was the, the way that you organized was very grassroots. Like we, our website barely functioned. It was all kind of word of mouth. Um, I was 16 when we started and it was all like grassroots kind of community work and projects and that kind of thing. But it meant that I did lots of small talks and events and so on and I was planning to do this TED talk I'm sorry I'm stopping you right there you're 16 and you start youth without borders and you're like yeah I was 16 and I started this at 16 I didn't know my arse from my elbow and like couldn't okay I was barely functioning as a human being and you're like you know into the world yeah, so yes. snaps for you, Yasmin. <laughs> Thank you. I think, you know, I peaked very early. I peaked too early, I think. <laughs> oh, God. All downhill um, from here. <laughs> literally, literally. Once I hit 25, I was like, all right, this has been fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, though, that's nine years. Like, most people have got some catching yeah, up. Yeah. You're allowed a little break. You're like, yeah, you can, guys, you can. You could stick the kettle on and put your feet up for a bit, I think. To, to be fair, the last few years, I really have just been like, you know what? I did my time. Let me just chill out for a bit. <laughs> Everyone's like, self-care. I'm like, bring it on. Um, so so I, anyway, I was planning to do this TED Talk about like something to do with youth borders or like the um, something to do with like children and education. I don't even remember, but it was very kind of generic. And then on my way, to meet the organizer of the TED talk. Um, I caught the bus and I, I catch the same bus every day. And for some reason I'd caught the bus earlier that day um, wearing the same outfit, but had my, my scarf tied up in a turban. And then when I went to catch the bus to meet the organizer, I styled it in the more traditional manner, um, which is kind of like wrapped around the face. And I had like the same bus driver and I got like totally snubbed and I was like, screw you dude I was wearing the same outfit right and I I just like changed the style of my headscarf and so I was like sitting on the bus and I'm fuming to myself and then I get to the meeting and I was like I'm gonna tell you about my TED talk in like a second but let me just tell you about this can you believe a blah 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 and then like 15 minutes in she was like this is your talk I was like what she was like you are the perfect person to talk about this and I was like no (laughs) all the good things in my life people are like you should do this I'm like no <laughs> um and yeah and then I thought and then I thought about it and I was like well yeah I guess if I do wear you know the different outfits that I kind of wear whether it's like the oil rig outfit or my mosque outfit or like my going to the shops outfit I get treated very differently um and it's like knowledge that I am aware of but haven't like ever made a point of um I think it was a bit it was a bit scary to be honest because also I don't know it cast me my back so it was I did the talk in December 2014 and went online mid 2015 December 2014 like 
we're we're quite far away progressive from like from where we were in December 2014. Australia didn't have gay marriage like same-sex marriage you know the conversation around trans people is completely different there were barely any television shows with like Muslim characters I mean there aren't that many now but you know at least it's like Rami and Master of None you know there's like a few more um and and I'm like in Brisbane and I walk onto the stage ring like my abaya and I, and you just people don't people are like what's this what's this gonna be you know um and it was just really fascinating to feel to feel people's defensiveness to feel people's uncertainty to feel their fear um and then to kind of like hold that and I mean as actors I'm sure you kind of understand that that sense of like holding the audience in the palm of your hand um and not playing with but being able to have control almost over um how that changes and shifts I find I find that when when I do talks that's kind of like it's very almost addictive like it's very there's it, it a sense of power in that you, you're like oh I can I can bring you up here and then I can take you here and I can you know and, and this can happen in an instant and being able to do that because you can talk to people about their biases but being able to make them feel it in themselves, in the moment, is very powerful. Um, so, yeah, I thought it went well, but I didn't think it would be as successful as it was. Um, because when it came out on the TED website, it then it then went gangbusters. It was like picked as the top ten ideas of 2015. And to be honest, like, is it probably was one of the main things that introduced the concept of unconscious bias into the mainstream kind of conversation because up till then it was really much more academic and so on and I had like pulled on a few different like the concepts had been around I didn't invent anything I just kind of like helped popularize it which is quite cool I guess in a way it's been interesting to kind of see how that's become corporatized and um how that's shifted over time and I feel I feel some kind of way about that um but that's perhaps less the fault of the concept and more the fault of more the result of people being unable to 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 deal with like structural and systemic stuff and so they like to focus on easily packaged solutions Mm. um but yeah it's been a ride yeah (laughs) that's amazing I feel like we should do our due diligence as good podcasters and allow a moment for promotion for the book so we haven't really talked about that in great detail yeah that was that's coming up too (laughs) you're on it you're on it you're totally on it all over it um so why the book um comes out in so technically it comes out in Australia on the 2nd of February Australia New Zealand so you must be Layla is the first in the series um and this is the second book called listen Layla um and maybe I can read like Oh my god, yes, please. Or can read a bit. Hold up. Yay! That would be wonderful. So you must be Layla is like it was my first fiction, and it was like about this young Sydney's Australian girl who gets a scholarship to a fancy high school, fancy private school, and um and then on the first day she gets picked on by this ugh, bully who's like quite racist and Islamophobic. And she gets quite irritated and she headbutts him on the first day of school. Boom. 
Um, then she gets suspended and put on probation and she has to win a robotics competition to prove that she can stay at the school, right? So a bit of STEM, a bit, you know, all my favourite subjects. Um, this is the sequel. So this is what the blurb says. <clears throat> Layla has ended the school year on a high and can't wait to spend the holidays hanging out with her friends and designing a prize-winning Grand Designs Turismo invention. But Layla's plans are interrupted when her grandmother in Sudan falls ill and the family rush to be with her. The last time Layla went to Sudan, she was only a young child. Now she feels torn between her Sudanese and Australian identities. As political tensions in Sudan erupt, so, do, so too do tensions between Layla and her family. Layla is determined not to lose her place in the invention team, but would she go against her parents' wishes? A powerful and funny own voices novel for young readers by writer, broadcaster, engineer, and social advocate. It's me and Amza Majid. Yay! 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 So it's so good. So yeah, it's um, it if people want, I have a small number um of UK available books um that I shall sign myself uh, that people can get through my website. Yep. Um, so that's very exciting. So exciting. <laughs> So yeah and also the even coolest thing the even cooler thing I should say um is that both books got optioned by a production company in Australia so I'm currently writing the scripts for that which is wild that's amazing that's so exciting thank you it's so exciting and incredible and important and also just that whole thing of like um giving a voice to our younger people like I, I, it's just um like because I teach a lot and I teach a, a lot of our younger people and actually the the myth that they are a uh, you know they don't care or anything is so mm. untrue or they are going to I, I totally believe they are going to be the savior of this world our younger people Aww. oh my god I got proper mush fucking hell Elaine check yourself <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Just, um, I spent a bit of time on TikTok and I'm like, oh, good old Gen Z. Yeah, yeah, so yeah they've awesome. got this. They're, they're sorting it out. Kind of, what's been the reaction from like your your young adult readers like um, that you've got? It's really, it's really like heartwarming, to be honest. Like, I'll tell you what, I love writing for younger readers because um, I think adults are very hard to please. <laughs> I think adults yeah. are very contrarian. Um, whereas young adults, they'll either pick up your book and love it, or they'll pick it up, read like 10 pages and put it down and never like pay attention to it again. So like the kids that get through it tend to be like, I get the most adorable emails every now and again. And, you know, um, or usually, or like parents will like send me a photo of their kid reading the book and being like, you know they're, they're, they're loving it or whatever so I think it's also like you know there just aren't that many there are a lot of Sudanese people living all around the world that aren't that many Sudanese characters um like I think that's a big reason why I decided to write fiction I was like I would have like loved to read a book with a kid with cultural references that made sense to me right um and I don't think representation is everything, but I think it is quite powerful. Um, and I think that, 
you know, the idea of, of then, you know, taking it to the next stage and being able to bring it to a screen, inshallah, is also like super exciting because it means that you're now part of the narrative, right? You now you insert yourself into the story of a nation or a society. Um, and I think that's like incredibly valuable. Um, so, yeah. Oh, it's so exciting. I know, it's so exciting. And I, I think, think it's it, something that um, for Australia as well, like I think it's really important. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it's oh, like... <laughs> no, go, go ahead, Louise. No, no, carry on, carry on, please. <laughs> I was just going to say, people are always like, oh, the racism's really bad in London. And, all the... and I'm like, well, you don't know where I've been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I yeah uh, I remember God. being in Australia I mean this is a while ago now like crap how old am I 14 years ago I was like just doing the math really quickly <laughs> uh, yeah nearly 14 years ago and I went to visit family and um people's casual racism I was I mean you know let's not kid on Scotland's not that progressive we like to think that we are and we play this oh yeah we're super progressive but even 14 years ago I was like whoa hold the fuck up the worst part is I thought that was normal it wasn't until I left that I was like oh not everybody thinks this you know I ended up having quite a big discussion quote unquote um with um some uh, men in my uncle's local pub my sister and I both had quite big discussions not just actually about race and um, the homophobia as well holy yeah. fuck mm. I was just yeah. like mm, guys you need fucking catch up to the rest of the world like come on it's really anyway. it's really sad and also like I think the ch- it's very strange because I think that there are like pockets in Australia that are incredibly progressive. Um, yes, but sure, I should like I should despise no, 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 no. There country. are, there are, there are. I mean, I do it all the time, so don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> and you're Australian, so you can. So it's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People was like, "Why didn't you come back?" I'm like, mm, 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 "No." Um, <laughs> the fact that I'm willing to take these gray dark skies over you know says something um but the the like the level of conservatism that is very normalized politically and across the media and so on is like relatively frightening you know the the attitude towards climate at at a policy and government level um the attitude even like the sexism and misogyny in Australian public discourse is wild, is wild. Like the, I remember speaking to um, Anne Summers, who's like quite a prominent Australian feminist, um, like sort of one of the originals, the OGs, like Jermaine Greer kind of age group. And she was saying that like, when Julia Gillard became prime minister, so Australia's first female prime minister, like she she did some research and stuff into the rhetoric and all of that kind of thing at the time. And she was like, it was so bad. She felt like something broke in the way that Australian, that women in Australian public discourse were allowed to be spoken. I, I can't even, I can't even begin to describe the level of disrespect that exists 
um, at, at a that is that is not even that exists, but that is normalized, that is allowed, that is deemed as acceptable. And again, like I genuinely, I remember when I first um, when I was working, I met like I did some some training, and I came to Europe, and um, I think we were in the Netherlands. We were just like chatting with some Dutch guys, and I can't remember, but it just like occurred to me, I was like, oh men don't automatically hate women like that's not that's not, <laughs> your baseline isn't to start by oh you like and it just was, blew my mind that men didn't hate women as a basic as a baseline because that was like the way the world that I had grow, grown up in engineering in Queensland on the rigs in like in the motorsport world it was the baseline was like men hate women and you just have to kind of work around that um, and if you're if you're fat, if you're black, if you're any if you're a woman with a disability, if you're quit, like anything makes it worse. Um, and and the idea that like not that that didn't have to be what was normal literally blew my mind. And I think it's it, I often think how wild it is that it took me leaving the country to be able to see a lot of these things in perspective. Yeah, that is wild. <laughs> that is pretty wild. I mean, not to say that we haven't, you know, growing up in Scotland experienced some pretty like crass levels of misogyny. Every every culture has it, but yeah, like I mean, that sounds like to to go through up until a certain age like of adulthood to to like have it really like awaken in you that it's not the default as necessarily so is is wild. Yeah, they yeah. say that there's this book called The Fatal Shore um that kind of looks at Australian culture it's a bit old now but I remember one of the things it talks about is the fact that like Australia was in its current form and like let's not even talk about how it treats its you know the First Nations people but in its current form it was like a colony made up of convict men and mostly men and so like it was just dudes angry pissed off in this inhospitable environment for decades and then they eventually like brought some women a small amount like a small number of women um but the fact that there weren't enough women made the men even angrier like and so it was just like yeah the foundation of that is like incredible like apparently um this is unverified information so it could be fake news but I was told (laughs) (laughs) I was told that like the term prick tease comes from the fact that like there were a the the women used to be like if they picked one man to be their partner or whatever the rest of the men would just resent them so much um because and they would they would call them prick teasers because they were just like wandering around being women and having chosen some just blows your mind it's sort of tr- uh, that sort of triggers something kind of like almost dna level deep in me like i got like a rush of anxiety that you know because you, know, you know it's like it's in our it's in our bones oh. like it's like it's diluted over the years because we're fortunate enough to be where we are in this moment in time to have some progress but like that description just made me go oh god because it's like yes yeah, how do you deep. fight with your womb and your boobs and things Ugh. that you cannot literally control cannot control yeah. my tits or the fact that I was born with a womb. Yeah, I want to say not all Australian men, but I don't know if I really care enough to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the thing, though, isn't it? It's like, like, you know, you fucking know it's not all men. But you don't hold each other other to account, so it kind of is. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. like I just like the I ones get, that are yeah. questioning that. Great, you f- keep fucking doing it because you're needed. But the ones of you that are just sitting fucking back and going, it's not omen. Uh, yeah. Once again, I, I'm going to share yeah. that cartoon <laughs> I, that I shared the other day. It's not even my. I wish it was my fucking cartoon. And it's like a, a field of like all these dead bodies and two women warriors, and they were and it's men, and they were like, "How do they? How do we know they're?" they're all dead and what the next clip is one of them shouts out all men are trash and then the next one is not all men not all men not all men and it's like all these wee dead bodies lies up so then they just go around and stab them all and go well now we know they're not all dead so you know that is too once again that's so dark and so funny trash, but you know <laughs> yeah. fucking do your shit that's so dark i love it it's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, oh. I kind of just like because I'm such so aware of time because you know <laughs> we want to yes be- I've just been chatting shit this whole time thank you uh, been <laughs> chatting wonderful uh, charming intelligent amazing stuff yeah and we're grateful I'm, for I'm you I'm just wondering <laughs> maybe when the book gets released in the UK we could do like a wee follow-up of just like what's happened that would be great that would be lovely um I'd love that all right hang on before we finish up oh. <laughs> Yasmin Abdul Majid, we need you to tell us what does persistent and nasty mean to you? Oh, I think persistent and nasty means to me um, going after what you want to do and not really giving much of a fuck what anyone thinks about it because, you know, they may term it nasty. Um, but I tend to think that, like, that means you're on to something that means that you're making a difference and even if you're not and you're just having a good time like that's fucking sick too love it yes love it, love it. <laughs> I also love that I totally like scottified I don't even know if that's a thing but I'm gonna say it is now um like your name is Yasmin and I'm being like Yasmin so Scottish <laughs> the whole time it's great no 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 I mean the Australians do it as well so it's very fine <laughs> I I'm like it's your name. Really, yeah. I'm like, All right, Yasmin, I. How's it going? There are some names though that when you say them in our accent, they sound particularly Scottish. Yasmin's oh. one of them because I, I don't know if it's the vowel sounds or what, but there was a girl I went to school with called Mariah, and when people said her <laughs> name like Mariah, it sounded so that is very <laughs> Scottish. Scottish Mariah. Very aggressive. Hey, Natalie, Mariah. Well. it's like Natalie, Natalie, Natalie. Natalie. There's Natalie. Just, oh god. There's just some names that just like it must be the vowel sounds, they just come out sounding super Scottish. I love I love Scott. I try it all the time and I butcher it and I'm so sorry, but I you know I'll fucking keep trying. Keep trying. You can listen back to this and uh listen to us saying your name and just repeat it back, like you'll get there. Even though it's not how you say your name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just just use it as an entry point regardless, even if it's wrong. <laughs> Uh, after watching yes, Outlander man. for like a month straight, I was like, "Are you even?" I was just like, <laughs> just chatting. I was pretend. Just... <laughs> I was like, "Are oh, you sassanich? You sassanich?" And everyone's like, "What are you saying?" <laughs> if you watch Drag Race at the moment and Drag Race oh. UK, RuPaul is obsessed with trying to say Lawrence Cheney. It's hilarious. He just goes, "Yeah, Lawrence Cheney." It's really funny. Yeah. Just 
I think right. it's the first time there's been a Scottish, well, two Scottish drag queens in the series, actually. I think that's never happened before. So it's, it's given me a lot of joy. <laughs> you can also see, because I'm I watching... Need, I need to get on it. I need time. to get on it. You do. I'm watching the American one at the same time, and you can tell that, like, the Scottish one was... Uh, the Scottish one, because <laughs> there's two Scottish people in it. The UK one was um, filmed before they did the American one, because every so often you'll go, get all. <laughs> get all, yeah. Get such a Scottish phrase, girl. It's like five. Um, <sighs> Yasmin, thank you so much. Like, what an utter thank you so much. Joy, 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 joy. Um, so, for anybody who is uh, listening in Australia, because we do have listeners in Australia, um, uh, listen, Layla is available now. Penguin mm-hmm. Bookshop, yeah, yes, or any good bookshop independent is best. Any good, and it's also audio as well. Yes, I read it out. I actually read it out and I said the word forlornly wrong the whole time. I said forlornly, which I think sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, like, I think you... that sounds like it could mean the same thing. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I was like, she's she's forlornly. <laughs> oh. And we will like, you... <laughs> add all your socials into the episode um, box. But if there's anything that you want to give a special shout out where people can find you. Um, yasmin.substack.com look even I say Yasmin now okay. um, so, <laughs> Yasmin <laughs> Yasmin my, my <laughs> weekly <laughs> I've got a, a newsletter um, called Diasporan Diaries at the moment which um, which I'm doing once a week and on the socials um, Yasmin underscore A and if you're on TikTok it's a, underscore AM Yasmin underscore AM um, my TikTok, TikTok. Oh, it's the worst. All I do is like, I talk about racism and then I like sing badly. Like that's the combination. This is great. I love it. Coronavirus. I'm not. I go on and I do a little bit. I went on one time with, I got a pendulum that was really pretty and I was like, ooh, look at me. I'm on witch talk. And then I was like, "Mm, no, I've not been back on this. Oh God. On that note. Oh, this has been so good. Thank you so much. So fun. Thank you. Thank you. And um I can't wait to uh read listen, Layla. Yeah. Um, and we'll get you back when it's officially released in the UK. As always, lovely listeners, thanks very much. And stay Stay (laughs) nasty.